This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'd be really glad for you to open those with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8 is where we are going to be today. I'll start reading in verse 26, but we've covered quite a bit of ground that really sets us up to be in the place where we are this morning. If you brought your own Bible, then fantastic. Acts chapter 8, verse 26 is where we're going to be. Uh, If you didn't bring your own Bible, then a hardback black one like this should be in a seat back near you, and you're looking for page 862, 862. We're coming this morning to an, an interesting story in the unfolding of the broader story of of the book of Acts. It is a story, the whole book of Acts, of the unstoppable growth of Christ's kingdom through conversion. Not by the sword, not by tanks rolling into town, not by political manipulation, not by the spending of wealth, but rather by the preaching of the gospel and the conversion of sinners. This is how Christ's kingdom grows in the world, through conversion. First in Jerusalem, then in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. This is the storyline of Acts. Uh, We saw early on in our study of the book of Acts, tens of thousands of people converted in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a a thriving megachurch immediately seeming uh, seemingly on on the scene there. Uh, Shortly after the, the growth of this church in Jerusalem, there began to be persecution that was ratcheting up against the church that was growing there. It eventually got to be so steep that the church there in Jerusalem was scattered about uh, out of the threat of imprisonment and even death, as Stephen was an example of uh, suffering death because of the persecution that was against the church there in Jerusalem. When the church was scattered, though, we didn't see the church stop growing. In fact, we saw it continue to grow. And we saw this sort of leap both from initially these these folks who were purely ethnically Jewish to those who were sort of ethnic mutts. Uh, they were Jewish, but they had other ethnicities mixed within their their line. These Samaritans. Uh, there's a lot of Old Testament history that sort of bundled up within all of that. But the Holy Spirit, God himself, confirms that the promises of the gospel go not only to Jewish believers in the Messiah, but also to somewhat Jewish believers in the Messiah. Uh, And then there is the further extension then to the ends of the earth. So Jerusalem, the church grows. The unstoppable growth of the kingdom of Christ through conversion. We see the extension out to Samaria. uh, And these Samaritans, they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and there becomes a flourishing local church there in in the city of Samaria and seemingly throughout, throughout the villages that are around in the broader region of Samaria. Now today we're coming to what really is the first of three miraculous conversions in the unfolding of the storyline of Acts. There's the Ethiopian official in Acts chapter 8 here at the close where we're going to read today. There's the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. This one who's ethnically Jewish, who's culturally Jewish, who's religiously Jewish, who's actively hostile against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world, but who is miraculously transformed and brought into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and becomes one of the biggest proponents of the gospel that the world has ever known. Then there is the conversion of an interesting character named Cornelius, who is seemingly in Luke's unfolding and God's unfolding of the storyline of Acts, who seems to be kind of this this quintessential Gentile. He's the furthest out, it seems, who who even these guys are able to be converted. And each of these three conversions, the Ethiopian official, the Apostle Paul, uh, the one who's Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul later on, and Cornelius, each of these are divinely initiated encounters. So in the unfolding of the storyline of Acts, really, as I considered, what do we do with the Ethiopian official? He, he seems to be kind of a, wait a second, it's, it's too early in the storyline. Why, why this one who's, who's unrelated at all, really, to Jerusalem. Uh, he, he seems to, be, to have some affinity for the, the Jewish religion, the, the covenant of Moses. 
Uh, he seems to be trying to live as one who would who would know and follow the, the Old Testament, uh, the the uh, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, who is the same God of the New Testament. But he's he's going by the Old Testament scriptures, trying to worship and obey and live according to God's law. Where does he fit in the storyline? Uh, he is already the ends of the earth, it seems. He's already the furthest out Gentile to that known world of that day. And it seems to me that the unfolding of this storyline and these three conversions in particular, one after the other, which sort of culminates, as I said, in Cornelius, this Gentile's Gentile. It seems that all three of these are meant to highlight the going out of the gospel to the ends of the earth and that all of this, all of this is by God's initiative. God is the God who delights, who takes pleasure in saving all kinds of sinners. And he's the one who has initiated all of this. And of course, the byproduct of that is that those who follow and love the Lord Jesus Christ are meant to play their part in God's own mission to glorify himself in saving all kinds of sinners. Well, with that bit of an introduction, let's look then to our primary passage Picking up on this uh, finishing up of the evangelism that's going on in Samaria and Philip and Peter and John making their way back to Jerusalem. And then this divine encounter that Philip has with this Ethiopian official on the road. Would you stand with me as I read this primary passage of ours for today? Acts chapter eight, starting in verse twenty six. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this like a sheep. He was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearers, shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth in his humiliation. Justice was denied him who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What pre prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. And went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And he passed through. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Thank you, God, for your word. You can all be seated. The main point that I'd like to draw out of this passage in its context of the unfolding of the storyline of Acts. And I believe in the unfolding of the storyline of all of the Bible is that God's mission is for all Christians and, and churches to play their part according to God's instruction in God's own mission to glorify himself in the salvation of all kinds of sinners. So really that last clause is the primary aspect of what I'm trying to, what I believe is the main point of this, the, this passage, this episode's inclusion in the storyline of the book of Acts, is that it is God's own mission to glorify himself in the salvation of all kinds of sinners. But so to include it in that is the reality that God's mission for all Christians and churches is to play our part. And of course, not to our own desire, our own intentions, but rather according to God's own instructions. For those who like to take notes, 
the, the three points that I'll make today are first, uh, kind of setting the scene here for us in understanding the mission of the church, not trying to take anything for granted, but helping us all start with the same footing underneath us, the mission of the church. Secondly, looking at God's gracious initiative. This really is the focus of the passage today. And then third and finally, the biblical response to the gospel, which is both included in our passage and then also uh, implied from what we've read elsewhere before. So getting straight to it, let's consider this first point, the mission of the church. These are sort of the arrangement of the furniture in the room that you have to have in order to understand uh, what is happening in this passage and how this should apply to us in our own day. So let's first just kind of unpack this statement or this phrase, the mission of the church. First, we want to understand the church. The church is is really kind of speaking in, in two ways simultaneously. And it depends on the context of how you're using that, that word as to which you're particularly referring to. So the church can refer and does refer to the universal church or the invisible church. This is all believers from all geographical locations, from all times and all space. It is, for example, in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, we're able to see Luke refer to the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. So he's referring to one church, but in all these different locations. In this sense, he's referring to the, the universal church, the, the invisible church. It is not all gathered in one place at one time, so you can't see it. And yet... This is something that will happen in real time and space in glory. We are looking forward to the day when the invisible church shall become visible, when the universal church shall become local. So in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 14, for example, John sees a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. They are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are Christians. From everywhere. He goes on to say in chapter 21 that these shall be presented as a bride. He sees this as another picture of the same group as a bride adorned for her husband. And it's at this time that the dwelling place of God will be with man, and he, God, shall dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We look forward as Christians to the day that there will no longer be local churches but one visible universal church that is fully gathered before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will be God's people for forever. God being with us. But in the meantime, we have something of a foretaste of that universal gathering in visible local churches, in particular geographical locations that gather at certain times on certain days in the here and the now. And so in this sense, the Bible uses the word church referring to visible or local churches. That is local assemblies or congregations or churches. The words all mean the same thing. Church means assembly or congregation of people. Disciples of Jesus Christ joined in covenant faith and fellowship and bonded by their mutual love for Christ and for one another. These visible churches are visible in real time and real space particularly when they are gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ on the Lord's Day. So FBC Diana is an assembly, a gathering, a church. The church is not the building, though it's not totally inappropriate to refer to the church building, the meeting house as a church. But we want to recognize that we're just talking about the place where we gather, that it's the gathering, the assembling, the churching of God's people that is actually the church. So if this building were destroyed by tornado or fire tomorrow, we would not cease being a church. We would still be a church. Not, not the, the building has nothing to do with whether or not we are a church. So too, there's this reality where we, we are both the church scattered. You know, uh, as we leave this place here in a little while, we'll be the church scattered about as we go. We don't stop being a church, but we become visible as a church when we gather. Which is another one of those reasons why it's so important that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, any local church, gather together. The gathering of the saints on the Lord's Day is is just Christianity 101. It's basic to what it means to be a church, to be a Christian. And so for us to take such a thing for granted just shows we don't know what the Bible says, if indeed we do take such a thing for granted. There are examples that we can find in the unfolding of the storyline of Acts. So Acts chapter 8, verse 1, there's the church in Jerusalem. 
In Acts chapter 13, verse 1, there's the church at Antioch. In Acts chapter 18, verse 22, is the church at Caesarea. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, the church at Ephesus. I could go on and on. So there's the church, universal and and local, the church invisible and visible. There's that understanding that we, we need to kind of have in place. But then also this idea of the mission. What is the mission of the church? Well, as we've talked about many times before, it shows up right here in the book of Acts. At the very beginning in Acts chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus commissions his disciples, really there are 120 of them gathered together as we learned a little bit later in the passage. But these folks who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus tells them, you wait in Jerusalem until I send my spirit, the Holy Spirit to you, and he will empower you to be my witnesses. And this is what you're to do in the world is to be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then all Judea and Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. And this is exactly how the unfolding of the storyline of Acts goes. So they understood what the mission was. Well, the mission is the same for every Christian of all time, is that Christians who follow the Lord Jesus Christ are meant to be his witnesses in the world. This is what Jesus tells his disciples at the close of Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, Jesus came and said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus, as the king of glory, sends his disciples out into this world to live as pilgrim ambassadors, citizens of an otherworldly kingdom that is breaking into this world. He goes and he tells them in verse 19, Matthew chapter 28, go therefore, as you go, really is the, is the phrase that he, he gives there, make disciples of all nations, of all ethnos, of all peoples, baptizing them. So how are we supposed to make disciples? He says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in the name of the God who saves, in the name of the God who rules, in the name of the God who's been ruling all time and space for forever and who sent his son to be the savior of guilty sinners like us. Baptize them in the name of that God. Verse 20, teaching them, observe all that I have commanded you. So the method of disciple making is baptizing, which implies evangelism, telling people the gospel, welcoming new converts into fellowship with us, with local churches and with Christ by public baptism and teaching those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to then observe, live by all of the commands that Christ has given. This is very simple stuff here, but this is the basics of what God intends for his people to do in the world. Let me note really quickly here that the method is included in the mission. So as I've been pointing out, Jesus says to make disciples, but he doesn't just say make disciples and do it however you like. Figure it out. Jesus says make disciples and do it this way. Baptize and teach. Baptize and teach. That is evangelize. In in baptism is the implication of evangelism. Tell people the gospel, aiming to persuade them to believe, as Max Stiles says in his little red book. When they believe... When they turn from their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, baptize them in the name of the triune God, in the name of the Savior that the triune God has sent, Jesus Christ. Baptize them in association with this name, the name of the King of glory, who rules this world and all worlds. Baptize them in the name of Christ and then teach them how to live as Christians. This is the method that Christ has instructed us with. As I said, this is Christianity 101, but this is a highly neglected or and or a highly unknown reality among many evangelicals today. Maybe you've heard people talk like uh, Christ has given us the mission, but he's left the methods undefined or the method the, the message stays the same, but the methods change all the time. Well, this just reveals someone's naivete. It just shows that they don't understand what the New Testament says about how you make disciples. It shows that they don't understand what King Jesus has said about what it looks like to live as a citizen of his kingdom, to be a Christian. So I wanted to ask you a quick question as we as we kind of set this stage here for what we're going to read in our passage. Do you believe that baptizing new converts, which again implies diligent and opportunistic evangelism? Do you believe that baptizing new converts and teaching Christ's commands is the God instructed method for church growth? Or do you expect something else to produce church growth? Do you believe that baptizing new converts, which again implies evangelism, 
and teaching people how to live as Christians? Do you believe that this is God's instructed way to transform the lives of your friends and your family members? Or do you think that it's some other program or some other initiative or some other activity that's going to do it? How about for revival? Do you believe that there's something that, that the church needs to do other than preach the gospel, baptize new converts, teach people how to live as Christians? Is there something else that churches have to do in order to see God miraculously bring about revival? If you do, I wonder where that thought comes from. I'm sure you can't find a passage in the Bible that supports it. There is nothing that we can do to conjure up or to manufacture spiritual conversion or grand scale revival. We cannot do it on our own. These are things only God can produce. And he's given us the instruction manual on how to do it. Now, that does not mean that every time we evangelize, every time we intend to baptize new converts, and every time we teach people how to live as Christians, that uh, by a sort of a mathematical equation, all of this equals revival. It doesn't necessarily work that way. God, in the end, decides what he's going to do and how he's going to distribute his gracious salvation. But he's given us the instructions and we must play our part according to God's instruction. Point number two, really getting in to the meat of our passage today. So with that sort of furniture set around the, the room, let's take a look at our passage and see God's gracious initiative. First, we see God's gracious initiative in our passage with Philip being sent on a special errand. In verse 25, we read that they, that they, which is Peter and Philip in the context of the passage that came right before, they testified and they had spoken the word of the Lord, uh, probably in the city of Samaria, and, and then they returned to Jerusalem, about 40 miles south, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans, probably the broader region of Samaria. Like I said before, think Upshur County and Diana, but both being named Diana. Right, so Samaria is the city and also the region around it. Uh, so it seems as though they preached the word, spoke the word to those who were in the city of Samaria. And then as they're traveling back to Jerusalem down south, they're also preaching the gospel to those who are in the broader region of Samaria as they go. But then verse 26 says, seemingly as they get back to Jerusalem, all three of them, now and, but, the word there in Greek basically means any one of those three items. So a translator's call as to which word you have in your translation, verse 26. Now and but, an angel of the Lord said to Philip. Okay, Philip now is being sectioned off. No, we're not talking about Peter, John, and Philip now. We're talking about Philip. And what does the angel of the Lord say to Philip? Well, the angel of the Lord says, rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Uh, Gaza is about 50 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And Luke tells us that the place where the angel of the Lord is sending Philip is a desert place. It was probably along this road between Jerusalem and Gaza, this about 50 mile stretch, this desert place, this wilderness area, that Philip came alongside the Ethiopian official. Now, there may be a miracle implied in the passage with Philip's running up alongside the chariot. I don't think there's the miracle, rather. Uh, I think the miracle comes later when Philip miraculously vanishes off into the distance and goes on doing other evangelism. It's quite likely, as travel happened back in these days, some folks are walking along the path, some folks are riding donkeys along the path, some camels, some chariots. Philip is walking along down this road, and God providentially puts him right beside this Ethiopian official. Maybe it's miraculous in God's bringing him up alongside where Philip's able to run super fast and get there. There's nothing that indicates that in the passage, though. But nevertheless, it is God's divine initiative that Philip ends up on the road right beside this Ethiopian official. That's certainly God's miraculous and gracious initiative on display. And who is this Ethiopian? Well, we read in verse 27 that he is a, a eunuch. Uh, this, for those adults in the room, we understand what's being talked about there most likely. Uh, this is significant uh, as we'll see here in just a, a couple of moments in the passage. He's also a court official. He's a court official of the queen named Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. And he is in charge of all of her treasure. There's much we could learn about the Ethiopian here. I want to point out three quick things. One is that he's not Jewish, not even a little bit. He's not even Samaritan. 
he's a total uh, pagan from the minds of uh, both Jews and Christians of this day. He is an utter Gentile. Another thing we might learn about him is that he was living like a God-fearer. He had, verse 27, come up to Jerusalem to worship. So he is living in some sense according to the Mosaic covenantal law. He's coming to Jerusalem at this time of year to worship Yahweh. But this Ethiopian, because of his physical condition, because of his social and political and, and economic status, his physical condition of being a eunuch would not allow him to be a God-fearer, a convert into Mosaic covenantal Judaism. So he's living, as it were, as someone who wants to be part of the covenant that the God of the Bible has made with humanity, but his physical condition does not allow him in. So he's one who's at a distance, unwelcome in the kingdom of God, and nevertheless aiming to get in. He's also a third aspect of who he is, a powerful man. And God sent Philip along the road where he would meet this particular Ethiopian. But that's not all. The Ethiopian was reading Isaiah. This is another uh, feature of the characteristics of who this Ethiopian was. He's reading of the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Again, showing his wealth. Not anybody had access to such a thing in this day. Also showing his interest in knowing the God of the Old Testament scriptures. The only scriptures available to people in this time. He's reading the prophet Isaiah. But this, more than telling us about the Ethiopian, tells us of God's own initiative already in the life of that Ethiopian. Of course, he was powerful and wealthy, but this gave him access to such a scripture. God, in his providence, gave this particular Ethiopian the ability to possess a scroll from the prophet Isaiah. God's sovereign errand for Philip put him right beside this foreigner who might have been in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, but he indeed was curiously reading from this Old Testament prophet. And it was this particular section of Isaiah that spoke of the coming Messiah. So Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet who wrote about the Lord's coming salvation, among other things. In the section that we'll see in just a moment where he was, the Ethiopian was reading from, it's speaking specifically of the Lord's coming salvation, which, which centers upon God's servant who will be smitten by God and pierced for his people's transgressions. That's the place in Isaiah that this Ethiopian official is reading. And right in the middle of that passage of Isaiah 52 and 53, the Ethiopian is reading, we're told by Luke, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. And then the eunuch says to Philip, verse 34, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Talk about an evangelistic softball. I mean, let me hit that one out of the park. It tells us in verse 35... Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Brothers and sisters, especially those of you who claim to be Christians, I wonder how many of you would be able to begin with this scripture and tell someone, teach someone the good news about Jesus. Would you be able to begin with the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament and tell someone the good news about Jesus? without leaving Isaiah behind and going straight to some other passage you know better? Do you know the unfolding of God's redeeming story in order to see where Isaiah fits? This prophet that God has sent to speak of the Messiah who is to come? This one who is both the king of Israel and the one who is the suffering servant? Could you open up this passage and tell someone 
the good news about Jesus. I'd also just like to say very quickly, because of some in American evangelicalism who say we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, how foolish such a statement seems when we look at a passage like this. It is precisely the Old Testament scriptures that New Testament Christians pointed to in order to do evangelism in the first century. I wonder how many of us are growing in our understanding of God's unfolding story, his mission to glorify himself in the salvation of all kinds of sinners, which did not just begin when the king of Israel was born in a manger. But again, we come to a short phrase in which a whole lot is packed. The good news about Jesus. What is the good news about Jesus? Can we explain the good news about Jesus from any passage in the Bible? Can we explain that in a way that someone who doesn't have any church background will be able to understand it? Can we explain the good news about Jesus without saying anything about our own personal experience, our own personal conversion story? That's not to say that your conversion story or mine is unimportant. Those things are vitally important. We can tell the good news about Jesus of what he's done for us in our lives. And that is a marvelous story. I praise God that he's saved those of us he saved. But can we tell the good news, not about us, but about Jesus? There are various ways that you can remember how to do this. Uh, you could use the Romans road, for example. Many of us have uh, in church and we know how to point to certain passages throughout the book of Romans to point to these verses, which which sort of lay out a summary of the storyline of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Another way you can sort of remember the concepts that are a part of the storyline is, is a, a fourfold, uh, four words that I like to remember, God, man, Christ, response. To help you remember, what is it I'm supposed to tell someone when I'm, when I'm trying to convey the good news about Jesus? Here's kind of a basic, a basic overview of the story. God, well, God is the creator. He's the one in charge of everything, and he's really good. Man, God created man in the beginning, good, but man sinned against God and has been separated from his, his presence, kicked out from God's presence, unable to be welcomed back in and under God's judgment. Ah, but there's a Christ. There's a Messiah. There's a savior that God has provided for guilty sinners like us. And because Jesus has lived the perfect life that we haven't, because he's died underneath the penalty that we deserve, and because he's conquered death, we then can be welcomed back into God's presence we can enjoy God's favor and his blessing, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And so then the last question is, how should a sinner respond? What should we do? How should I be saved? As the people ask Peter on the day of Pentecost. Ah, you should repent and believe. Well, let's look at those words and unpack those a bit more. God, man, Christ, response, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This sort of uh, pins on the, the map, the timeline of God's unfolding of the story of redemption. These are various ways that you can remember how to share the gospel with others. But let's key in on now this biblical response. Point number three, the biblical response to the gospel. The first thing I want to do with our passage this morning is I want to recognize and acknowledge that there is lacking detail. In our passage, with regard to the response of, of this Ethiopian official, we're told in verse 35, there's not, there's not a total lack of detail. There's a lack of, of some detail. We're told in verse 35 that uh, he, Philip, told him, the Ethiopian, the good news about Jesus. And again, this, this small verse is packed with a suitcase full of details. But we, we don't know what all Philip told him, but we do know in verse 37 that the Ethiopian official wanted to be baptized. And we also know in verse 38 that there was enough water there, there for him and Philip, the Ethiopian and Philip, to go down into it. So where there are some details lacking in our passage, we must not assume that the details that we're not explicitly told about are radically different from all the other details we've been told about in previous conversions we've read about so far in the book of Acts. But rather, we are right and there's warrant to assume that when the details are lacking in this instance they probably are going to match the things we've, we've read about so far. That the stuff we're not told about what Philip told him, which how in the world does he know about baptism? How does he know that baptism is what he needs to do in response to the good news that he's heard about Jesus? 
Ah, we should understand what Philip did in telling him the good news about Jesus included all the details that we've been told about in these other conversion instances earlier in the book of Acts. So these explicit details elsewhere are implied in the details here. So in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached the message about Jesus, he called his hearers to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Peter promised forgiveness for sins by repenting, and the other side of that coin is believing, and being baptized in association with the name of Jesus Christ, being united to the Lord Jesus Christ, being counted as Jesus' citizens among this world, and in this way, you are included in this promise of forgiveness. And in verse 39 of Acts chapter 2, Peter made it clear that the promise of forgiveness and the infilling of the Holy Spirit was for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So anyone who hears this good news, who responds in the way that Peter has articulated here, can also be included in this promise of forgiveness of sins and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And then we're told in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, that those who received his, Peter's word, were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And as we talked about when we were looking at the uh, Acts chapter 2 in this whole, this whole uh, episode, to what were they added? These 3,000 souls are added to what? I argue that it is to the body of believers that existed there in Jerusalem up to that point. Now, this is, in, in every other instance that the, that the Bible would explicitly say what you call this thing, that it is a church. The church in Jerusalem is what they were added to. And how were they added? By baptism. A baptism is the initiatory, the initial oath sign of those who are included in the kingdom of Christ and local churches are the sort of outpost in the world, the sort of embassy in the world of where Christ's kingdom is visible. This is what we see on display in Acts chapter 2. Then in Acts chapter 3, Peter preached again about the blessing of God. Acts chapter 3 verse 26. This blessing of God that had come through the person and work of the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's anointed one. And again, Peter called his hearers to repent. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. And Luke tells us that there were many who heard the word and believed. Acts chapter 4, verse 4. And these were added to the number of disciples already in Jerusalem. No details about baptism there, but the assumption is, the warrant is, how were they added? When the same way these other Christians were added before. By baptism. To the number of disciples already in Jerusalem. Now, we should not imagine that they raised their hands to be added to the number or that they put Christian fish bumper stickers on the back of their chariots, but rather that they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of the triune God, publicly joined with Christ and to one another. Then when we get to Acts chapter 8, Philip continued the same pattern as Peter had done before him. So early on in Acts chapter 8, which we talked about recently, uh, Peter's, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Philip's uh, preaching the gospel to the Samaritans, he proclaimed to them the Christ, Acts chapter 8, verse 5, and we're told that many of them paid attention to him, Acts chapter 8, verse 11, and believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God. So they, they hear the gospel, they respond with belief, trust, faith in the person who is the focus, the center of what this good news is. And then we're told by Luke in Acts chapter 8, verses 12 and 16, that those who believed were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. We notice a pattern here. How is it they were joined to Christ and to other Christians? Again, by baptism. So just like in Jerusalem, these baptized converts form a local congregation or assembly or church in the city of Samaria. So we are not to assume that there's anything different in this encounter with the Ethiopian official. Explicitly different. And that is that the Ethiopian official doesn't join a church by his baptism. But rather, he's left on his own. That's the difference. And it's a difference that we don't assume. We don't interject it because we want to or because we think it probably fits well there. But it explicitly says so in the passage. That Philip was taken away by God's spirit after this man, this Ethiopian official, came up out of the water from baptism. And that the Ethiopian went on his way rejoicing. 
So what are we to do with this? Does this undo every pattern that we've seen so far? Does this totally negate? Oh, we can't say that there's a pattern in the New Testament. Here's, here's an anomaly. Is that what we do here? No. We ask ourselves the question. All right. Here's something that's not like the others. D- does an exception to a rule disprove a rule? No, as a matter of fact, it actually demonstrates that a rule is a rule. A standard is a standard. And when you see anomalies, you call them what? Anomalies. They're odd. They're things that stand out. They're not like normal. So the standard is the norm. It's the rule. It's the typical. It's the what ought to happen. And there are some times when it doesn't go quite like that. Let's think about, though, what's happening in the context of our episode this morning and why it's perfectly reasonable that there would be anomalies we might find, at least one, in this unfolding of the storyline of the book of Acts. Here's a man who's headed off to a place where there is no local church. He's going to a land where he's the only Christian in existence. And it's happening during a time when the unfolding of God's plan of redemption is occurring. And this is a monumental occasion where the establishing of the early church is happening, where God's spirit has just come to dwell among his people, where there are people who are walking around who are speaking with the authority and the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ with uh, with his authority to people around saying, thus says the Lord. Uh, These folks are called apostles. The foundation of the early church is happening. And so the Ethiopian is headed out to a place where the gospel is not yet known as the one and only Christian who's been living as best he's able with the knowledge that he has as one who wants to follow the God of the Bible, who's just been told, who's just been handed the key that unlocks the whole storyline of scripture. And so now then this Ethiopian official is one who essentially is being sent out as the first missionary to Ethiopia. Now, again, we want to recognize this is not normal. This is the anomaly. So if, if you are someone who is, who is just happening to be here in Diana, Texas on this Sunday, and you have every intention of going to a place this afternoon, you're, you're going to continue your journey to a place where the gospel has not yet been named, And you have a good, healthy understanding of the Bible already. And you're just coming to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And this is now making the whole Bible understandable to you. And you can't wait to go and tell everybody else that you know in a place where there isn't a local church, the good news about Jesus. Well, then I might happily encourage you on your way. But if you're someone who wants to just take this as an example of how someone might be baptized, not in association with a local church, not brought in to a local church, spontaneously, a stranger on the road that Philip didn't know, well, then I'm going to want to ask you a few more questions. We don't make the anomaly the rule by which we live. Rather, we understand anomalies are anomalies. They're not normal, and that's why we call them anomalies. So then I want to point out, in closing here, that this, as we see the unfolding of the storyline of Scripture, as we see what we do know about what happened here with this Ethiopian official and God's initiative in saving his soul, we want to see that what Philip did here as playing his part in God's own mission to glorify himself in the saving of all kinds of sinners is what all Christians everywhere should do, is what all churches everywhere should do. We call sinners to faith. We call sinners to be justified to be made right before a holy God by and through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. We call sinners to believe, to have faith in, to trust in Jesus as the one and only Savior. And we call sinners to a total life transformation. We don't separate out evangelism and discipleship, but rather we understand that evangelism is something that comes under the umbrella of making disciples. We understand that it's our goal in life as Christians, those of us who are, to be disciple makers. And some of those people that we share the gospel with and call them to repentance are going to respond with repentance and faith. And we then teach them all that Christ has commanded. But not everyone that we share the gospel with is going to respond in that way. Those that do, we continue on this path of discipleship. We want to understand that justification is only one aspect of what it means to be a Christian. It is the core aspect of what it means to be a Christian. It is an essential aspect of what it means to be a Christian. But it's not all that it means 
to be a Christian. But Christ actually does command his people to live according to what they believe and to do this with other Christians. That is with a local church. So we must do what our Christian forebears have done. As we see as the unfolding of the storyline of Acts has gone, as Philip is exemplified in every way except for the singular one in which there's an un, uh, an uh, abnormal uh, you know recipient of the gospel here in the Ethiopian official. But with regard to every other aspect of all the gospel encounters we've seen thus far that have been exactly the same, we must do what our Christian forebears have done. We must do what our Christian forebears have done, not only from looking at this passage this morning, but also the Christians who've gone before us throughout church history. It seems to me that it's only been since the late, the, the mid-1800s that people started thinking more individualistically about conversion and Christian living. And of course, while Billy Graham did a great job of presenting the gospel far and wide, he also took evangelism as something outside of, disconnected from the local church in many ways. And so then it was during the 1900s when really this individualistic idea of conversion, the personal emphasis on conversion, just me and my personal testimony with Jesus, it was really amped up. But this is not how Christians throughout church history have thought. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite uh, stories of, of missionary effort is Adoniram Judson. I thought I had one of those books to give away, but I don't. I'm so sorry. But if you look up To the Golden Shore uh, by Courtney Anderson, a story about Adoniram Judson and his wife and many others who were evangelists, missionaries to the Burmese people, uh, you'll see a fascinating story. I want to tell you just a little bit of this story and focus in on the very first conversion that Adoniram experienced. And then in just a moment, we'll head into our observation of the Lord's Supper. On June the 6th, 1819, after more than six years of evangelism and Bible translation. Let me say that again. More than six years of evangelism and Bible translation effort without a single convert. Six years of evangelism and Bible translation efforts under all kinds of horrible conditions. It was on June 6th of 1819 that Adoniram Judson saw his first Christian convert in Rangoon, Burma. Maung Nau, I'm doing my best to pronounce it, came to Adoniram Judson on a Sunday evening with a letter in his hand. The letter is translated from Burmese, and it's what's recorded by Courtney Anderson in the book I referred to earlier. Here's how it went. From this new convert. I, Maung Nau, the consistent recipient of your excellent favor, this is written to Adoniram Judson, approach your feet. Whereas my Lord, he spoke to him with reverence, has come to the country of Burma, not for the purpose of trade, but to preach the religion of Jesus Christ, the son of the eternal God. I, having heard and understood, am with joyful mind filled with love. I believe that the divine son, Jesus Christ, suffered death in the place of men to atone for their sins. Like a heavy laden man, I feel my sins are very many. The punishment of my sins, I deserve to suffer. Since it is so, do you, sir, Consider that I, taking refuge in the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ and receiving baptism in order to become his disciple, shall dwell with yourselves, a band of brothers, in the happiness of heaven and grant me the ordinance of baptism. It is through the grace of Christ that you, sir, have come by ship from one country and continent to another and that we have met together. Think of the correlation of the Ethiopian official and Philip miraculously being beside him on the, on the desert road and how this man is in a similar situation, unknown to other people who have the gospel in their possession, but known to God, where he sends this man from across the planet to meet him right where he is. As it is, only since I have met with you, sir, that I have known about the eternal God, I venture to pray that you will still unfold to me the religion of God. Teach me more, he says. That my old disposition may be destroyed and my new disposition improved. This brand new convert had excellent theology. 
specifically excellent ecclesiology, doctrine of the church. He knew what it meant to be a Christian. Adoniram Judson had done his job. He had told him what it means to be justified by the merit, the work of Christ alone, and what it means to live as a Christian in fellowship with others. And what the promise of all of this ultimately is. A band of brothers and sisters in a glorious abode of heaven together. Mount Now was baptized three Sundays later in a dirty pond, just a short distance away from the small hut where the fledgling church was meeting. Adoniram and his family and Mount Now. Having believed the gospel, having been baptized in union with the Lord Jesus Christ and with other Christians, this new Christian set about following Jesus with his life. One of the ways, one of the main ways that we encourage one another in the ongoing nature of our loving, trusting, and following the Lord Jesus Christ is through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, which we'll get to observe in just a couple of moments. Would you bow with me and let's pray, and then we'll observe the Lord's Supper together. We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.